Should attractions have sustainability standards? That's coming up on today's show. Welcome to the show. I'm Philip. On the HAN Show, we bring you the news, information, and education you need to prepare for Halloween. On Wednesdays, we usually dive into a story from the news, but today I'm replaying an episode of Green Tagged Theme Park in 30. Last week, I mentioned that we will stop posting Green Tagged in this feed by the end of the month, and this is your final reminder to hop over to the Green Tagged feed if you want to continue listening. Links are also in the show notes. Okay, here we go. From our studios in Abu Dhabi and Los Angeles, this is Green Tag Theme Park in 30, an insider's take on the top theme park news each week. I'm Philip, and I'm here with my co-host, Scott Swenson of Scott Swenson Creative Development. And today I thought we'd start off with some signals that we're seeing from IAPA's strategic plan. So to give a little bit of context, IAPA had their annual board meeting, and in it they discussed some of their strategic planning and where they think they should set their priorities for. And there's a big post about that we'll link to the show notes. But I think the most interesting things, two things I thought were the most interesting, was safety and sustainability. The president announced a five-year strategic safety plan that sets a direction in how to develop the association's role and offering in this area. So they kind of laid out that they were going to (laughs) make... A safety plan. It's, it's like we're going to make a five-year safety plan that will include how we should talk about safety because it's important. And I'm like, yeah, that's important. And on the sustainability, they noted that in a recent survey, 71% of members indicated that sustainability is extremely very important to their organization. And they created a subcommittee to investigate a possible sustainability standard for board review by this November. So I actually think these two things were hidden in there, but they echo big trends we've seen. How many times have we talked about safety? Safety at the Six Flags, shutting down events, safety at theme park rides, all the deaths. I mean, safety is a big trend. And equally, sustainability, we've talked about the importance of sustainability, but we don't really see it coming up that often. It's one of those weird things. And it's also really interesting to me that they're thinking of making a standard because I feel like that could that could turn... Uh, maybe like unintentionally political as in like if IAPA is developing a safety standard and they need to get everybody or or, sorry, a a sustainability standard, I think getting everybody on board with that uh, should be easy, but uh, you know, I'm not sure. Like, I'm not sure why we don't talk more about these about sustainability. So it was so interesting to see them say 71%. And I was like, yes, I agree. And yet no one's talking about this. (laughs) What do you think, Scott? Well, I think I think that let me start with the sustainability thing first, because that's something that I've noticed, again, from from this side of the world, um, <clears throat> the parks that I have been to here and even even retail establishments, um, there are uh, first of all, you can't go grocery shopping without buying a bag. Mm. You there is no such thing as a free plastic bag. Um, so you either take your own or you purchase one. So it is something that is just standard operating procedure here in Abu Dhabi. Um, the. Uh, and as far as parks go, when it comes to parks and sustainability, um, I have learned how to eat with a paper spoon mm. um, as opposed to a plastic one. Um, so when it comes to that kind of sustainability, that is something that I think may be sparked by, you know, that that 71 percent um, may be sparked by the expansion here in the Middle East mm. of parks and, and attractions. Um, I don't know whether the same is true in Asia, but I do know that I, I know from direct experience that it is definitely true here. There is very, very little plastic waste um, here at parks in the UAE. 
And um, so I'm guessing, and this is just conjecture, I don't know, but I'm guessing that that may have sparked IAPA to say, well, gosh, we should probably look at this, you know, worldwide. Because when you say, <clears throat> when you're in the States, you forget that IAPA, the first letter of IAPA is international. Yep. So, um, so it, it, you have to take into consideration that it's not just Orlando and California and, and a few other parks in the States. Yeah. It's, that's not yeah. it. Is it, it looks at the the world as a whole, and as things continue to grow in in Abu Dhabi, uh, in you know in the Emirates in general, as well as in in Saudi and other parts of the world, the United States is going to be a smaller and smaller percentage of the IAPA membership. Yeah, and if the other parks are already looking at sustainability, um, <clears throat> it makes total sense. You know, I'd love to see, honestly, out of that 71%, I'd love to see how, what the percentage is just in the U.S. Broken down by sector. Um, what What do you think about them looking at a sustainability standard? Because, I, I mean, I, for one, I'm like, yes, thank goodness. But at the same time, I feel like it's it kind of reminds me of us over here being like, we need a, a privacy standard or like a tech standard or regulation. I mean, like, you know, it... it I think that I agree with you in my travels and and, and whatnot. I, I do see overall the tourist destinations embracing sustainability in a public and private way. It's mm-hmm. very trending, you know, because there's the public things you mentioned, but there's also the more private things like putting up the solar farms and whatnot. And, you know, like Disney used to talk about all that. It's like, it's like, I feel like we don't talk about that at all really here in the U.S. And I think it's because it's a, it's become a political topic. And I think that that same kind of shadow might follow any sort of kind of industry standard that they try to put out there because then then effectively you know you're having IAPA potentially certifying or 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 at least giving standards by which uh, a governing body could could uh certify or decertify attractions as to whether or not they are following sustainability practices right well i think that the reason you know cuz uh, so in my mind I'm looking at this going, wow, finally. I mean, that's what I'm thinking um, too, but also. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Let's take a half step back. Other than the political, I agree with you on the on the political ramifications of what this could cause. Keep in mind, IAPA is not, is not a, a governmental body. And when they say things like um, sustainability standard, that is not regulatory. Yeah. That is a standard by which its members should uh, should strive to achieve. Yes, um, but we know it could have regulatory Im- implications just because we know how it works, and some bodies may take IAPA's standard and yes. use it. Conceivably, yes. But again, IAPA represents uh, uh, an international point of view versus a local point of view. And I think part of the reason that it's taken so long for sustainability to actually be regulated or standardized or whatever is the um, the cost. Yeah. You know, being sustainable now has become more affordable, um, and it's it's not. It used to be that you know plastic cups were significantly cheaper than biodegradable paper, but that's not true anymore. They are there is the, the delta between the two has closed significantly. So now, without being elitist, IAPA can come in and say, "Here are the standards. Here are the sustainability standards," because they're more cost effective. Mm-hmm. You know, you can say. Uh, FEC, you have to hit these standards, and they're like, I can't afford to hit those standards. I can't, I can't afford to buy the the biodegradable organic 
paper to wrap my hot dogs, I've still got to put them in styrofoam clamshells, you know? Um, so, but now the prices have, have, the delta on the prices have come together a little bit more so they can be a little bit more, um, well, they've made it profitable to be sustainable. Yeah. And I think that is, you know, I've said it for years. The only way we're going to get any form of sustainability is, uh, or, or even responsibility for the environment is to make it financially viable and financially uh, beneficial yeah. to the to the organization because these are companies this is not a hobby these are companies yeah. who are out there for to to make money and i think that's a perfect segue into safety yeah. you know we all know that the most expensive thing that can happen to a theme park is an accident and not just from what it's going to cost them in lawsuits and you know lawsuits uh, lost uh, attendance because of bad press and then, of course, the cost to repair whatever it was that was that caused the accident in the first place. And if it's a roller coaster, obviously, you know, we've seen attractions. We've seen attractions shut down and be torn down after sitting dormant after accidents. We've seen that happen in our past. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it I, I don't want to sound like I'm that guy who's always talking about money. But the truth of the matter is this is a business. Yeah. And if you can ethically run a business in a way that is profitable for you, then that just makes all the sense in the world. Um, yeah, well, safety just, is part of that. Just looking at, at the examples that we've seen recently, like look at Glenwood Caverns, they had to shut down that ride for a whole year plus, right? And then pay to retheme the entire thing in order to try and reopen mm -hmm. it again to keep that asset at least somewhat usable. And then, you know, of course, the last thing Six Flags wants to do after their CEO is talking about how important Halloween is, is have to shut down their Halloween events because they can't keep a control on the crowds. I mean, you're right about right. them. I mean, these are huge financial implications. And, you know, again, though, I kind of feel like this problem almost is a little bit worse in the U.S. And, and that, that could be my U.S.-centric view of things. But, I, I you know, I scan headlines from all over the world every week for this, and I, I do not see nearly as many safety incidents coming from other countries maybe they're just not reporting and, and I get the only and again you're the you're the data guy philip you you look you look at this stuff in far greater detail than i from what i've seen is that based on is that based on per capita i mean is it based on the attendance of the park that's true because that's a good point you know yeah. i look at parks i look at parks here and i see that there is significantly lower attendance but i see that there are um significantly more children climbing on rocks, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's, it's a unique thing culturally here. Um, and it's because there are so many different cultures, uh, in the, in the UAE that, that are all coming together to enjoy all of the things on Yaz Island, for example. Yeah. So you've got a bunch of different cultures and a bunch of different ways of raising children all coming together. And you see a, you, it's like herding cats. You see a mishmash of, of trying to figure out what is, what is appropriate as far as safety standards and what can you mandate and what can you not? Yeah. So um, I agree with you though. It does appear that there are more safety issues in the U S it may also be another, another factor that may play into that is government involvement. Yeah. I mean, here in the UAE, the government is very much involved in the, uh, the development of theme parks and, and leisure activities. So in fact, there's an entire wing of the government that does nothing but that. Um, so, you know, it makes it makes sense that if you're a little bit more Wild West still like the U.S., um, and especially in, in certain markets, mm -hmm. uh, 
that there may be more more injury because there's not as much government oversight. Now, I'm not saying there should be more or less government oversight, so please do not write comments or letters or whatever. All I'm saying is this may be the reason for it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the, the other thing that IAPA has uh, going on, and th- this is separate from the board meeting, but the other thing that IAPA kind of put out a statement about is uh, from their public affairs department. And, uh, you know, because we're kind of winding down and a lot of the sessions are winding down right now. And so they kind of issued a, a recap of what's going on. And the things I thought was most interesting was that, uh, again, underlining that the recruitment and retention and staffing challenges are just kind of also reflected in legislation as, of course, you know. And uh, they talked about how 47 of the bills that they are tracking deal with employee leave and that type of, in that vein, which is, Again, you know, seeing the data, we, we talk about that. That's why we talk about it so much. Uh, they also talked about how workforce recruitment and retention challenges continue to be the number one issue impacting IAPA members. For that reason, we are pleased states such as Ohio, Iowa, and Utah are considering bills that would allow workers under the age of 18 to work more hours. Connecticut is weighing attraction-specific legislation that would allow workers 14 and older to work non-hazardous jobs. Wow. Yeah. Indeed, I will be honest. That's this is the this is the first I've I've heard this, so I'm a little uh, I'm a little taken aback by that. I don't. Uh, wow, I have to formulate how I feel about that. Uh, that's exactly what I thought when I first read it. I, I you know I mean we talked a lot. Like I always talked so much around this about the topic of how do we you know what type of compensation can you can you do? Can you rethink how do we rethink the role and the compensation to make it attractive for people? And you know. You always saying, Scott, how it's not about the money, it's really about the larger things. And I think what struck me about this is like, like, oh, well, this is one way around it, basically, where they're like, well, we'll just bring in younger and younger team members. And then, you know, for them, then it becomes their first job or their internship or their, you know, getting their feet. Well, I mean, it becomes like that becomes more of what it's about. But um, I'm not sure because I was just, I was just thinking, this literally this happened to me this week twice we were at uh disney and i heard comments twice about how the uh, cast members were too young and inexperienced like they just didn't know you know like no like kind of like no social skills don't know what they're they're just like like kind of just like uh so i'm a little bit like "Mm," i mean we have i'm just like well i mean like 14 year olds running you know guest service i'm not sure (laughs) i don't i don't know i don't know i don't know i don't don't know how i feel about this i don't know (laughs) yeah i i Wow. So this is, this is, you know, you, you always hear me talk about how everything is cyclical and the pendulum swings back and forth. I never thought child labor was going to be something that would swing back. I know. Um, <laughs> it's like, I was like, well, this is one way, I guess, to fix it. I don't know, I guess. I mean, well, yeah, I mean look at haunted houses, right? Yeah. If you can't sustain, if you can't sustain the labor pool that you have, expand the pool. I mean, I understand, I do understand the methodology here. Um, oh boy. Uh, now I will say in, just kind of talking this through, and I, I may come back later and listen to this and, and go, oh my God, Scott, what did you say? Why did you say that? Um, live on the internet But forever. I will say, <laughs> I know, I know. Trust me, I've put my foot in my mouth so many times on the internet. It's just habit. So, but at this moment, as of this particular recording date, uh, I look at this <clears throat> and I think, well, on the one hand, 14-year-olds have experienced significantly more of the world than they did when I was 14. Um, mainly because they have 
they have access to, via technology, they have access to so many more things. And is it necessarily a bad thing to train a 14-year-old to have better interpersonal skills, to have, uh, you know, better ways of communicating that don't involve a screen and thumb typing. So um, that may be a positive thing here. Uh, It's clearly, though, that necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, But at the same time, I think it's interesting that 47% of the bills that IAPA tracks deal with employee leave. Yeah. So so it's, it's like, we, we need well, to if find you could more bring people. Bring your 14-year-old to work. That would solve the <clears throat> leave. <laughs> there you go. Bring your 14-year-old to work day. Ah, it's, they can uh, work with you. <laughs> I can't. Yes, yes, exactly. That is that is truly child labor law issues. Uh, but the uh, but the idea here is, it, wow. So I will tell you here here in you the UAE, that, that's basically middle school. Like fourteen is the threat is the upper end uh-huh. of middle school. So I'm just like, uh-huh. so you could, I mean, I guess they're thinking like summer break or summer vacation or weekends or I mean, I don't, anyway, anyway, keep going with your keep up with your thought. No, no, that's that. I mean, that's fine. I I, I mean, to be completely honest, uh, I started working when I was uh, thirteen. Yeah. So yeah. It, and and now I was self employed at the time. Yeah. But I started working and I, and I started performing as a magician. So I was doing, you know, birthday parties and special events and that kind of thing. So I, I don't see that as, I, I don't see the age as that much of an issue yet. I don't know. Um, but, but like, for example, here in the UAE, they have a very, un, they have a very different work approach. Now, they also have a very different work ethic. Um, but, it, yeah, and there's also a lot of different, levels of society here mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, in the UAE. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, the parks here are on a six-day work week and up to 10 hours per day. Um, yeah. And now that's a little bit unique right now because we're in, we're in Ramadan, which means that uh, based on government issue, this is, not a, this is not a do you, well, slightly based on are you observant or are you not, uh, but the workday then goes down during Ramadan. The workday goes down to either six hours if you are observant and seven hours if you are not. Mm. Um, so, it, and there are very there are very few uh, other than religious centric. There are very few holidays, uh, government paid holidays throughout the year, and that's left up to the individual company in many cases. Mm. Um, so the ones that are run by United States companies, for example. Um, or operated by uh, United States companies uh, usually take those kinds of holidays or offer those kinds of holidays off. Um, but as we all know, working in theme park, I've worked more holidays than I haven't. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but, but when it comes to leave, that's a bit more of a challenge, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. It's tricky. Uh, so we'll see People, people want to work. We need more jobs. And yet the majority of the things that they're dealing with are ways to get out of work. Now, is that so that they can maintain employees and don't have to retrain them? That's a strong possibility. You know, if, if they say, I need to take a leave because um, I have a, a family issue that I need to deal with for a month. And if they say no, well, then they lose that person because they're going to take the family thing anyway. Yeah. So they lose that person, and then they have to retrain, refine, rehire somebody else to replace them. So, I guess you know, being a little bit more lenient with leave 
the leave mentality could benefit in the long yeah. run. But the but the whole age thing is still kind of rattling my brain. I yeah. Uh, well, well, I don't know if there's anything wrong they're, with it. They're, they're not, I don't know whether there's anything wrong. With it. You know, again, this is just legislation that IOP is tracking. It's not like it's set in stone, right? I mean, wh- how much stuff mm-hmm. always comes up all the time and then never gets up. So it'll be interesting to watch. But um, I guess speaking of watching thing, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> so time interviewed. Bob Iger, and it, it was fine. There was a there was two things I thought were interesting. One, uh, one of course, was he was, of course, asked about the whole thing with Florida again as usual, and he he uh, gave I think a more toned down response versus when he talked to the shareholders. But he did kind of again reiterate his commitment to Florida and reiterate how much job, like kind of reiterate like how important they are for it and, and whatnot and kind of like that whole thing. So that's fine. But the more interesting part I thought was about uh, he was asked about uh, basically ESPN and what to do with that and the whole betting thing. And he said, he said, quote, I was probably on the more conservative side about this for a long time, but I've changed because I think the acceptance of sports betting has grown significantly. And my desire is to see that the company continues to serve its customers well without us really, I think, distancing ourselves from values because we're not actually causing the bets to be made. We're just enabling people to link to companies that do that. So, I, I, I mean... It was interesting because I did kind of think that they were going to spin off ESPN or somehow it was going to like kind of move into a different sphere because, it, I mean, you know, again, it, it kind of doesn't fit as much with the arc of how they're rearranging the company. But it was interesting for him to be like, well, you know, we're, we're, we're just pointing them to places where they can make bets. We're not like encouraging the bets. Because <laughs> online betting, of course, is taken for the context for listeners. Online betting has taken off more and more as as kind of regulations change about it and it's become more accessible to people. So this is a this is a trend that we're seeing online betting continue. Um, and I'm sure that we will continue to see it even more because follow the money, of course. So it's, you know, I'm sure it's gonna get worse. Yeah, I, I so in true Scott style, I'm gonna tell a little story. Um, when when I was younger, uh, my parents loved to go to the racetrack, to the horse racetrack um, when I was growing up. I was too young to bet. So my dad would become the house and I would bet significantly smaller amounts of money. Mm. And uh, my da- dad would become basically the the, the, the the window. I'd go to my dad and I'd say, you know, I, I want to bet 50 cents on this one to place. And he would use the real odds to either pay me back or not, which was all just really fun and, and teaching me how to, uh, how to bet at a horse racetrack. Mm. Um, so I see nothing wrong I don't, I don't have that much of a moral issue with betting on sports. I really don't. Um, I do understand that for some people it becomes a very serious problem and that is a completely different issue um, because there's pretty much anything you can mention that people can develop a, a serious addiction to. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't want to make light of that in any way, shape or form. So uh, as far as the, the moral ramifications of betting, personally, I don't, I don't have a, a strong aversion to that. What I do think is interesting is the choice of we're not we're not really making we're not forcing people to make the bets we're just showing them how to do it you know we're not really we're not really forcing the children to smoke cigarettes we're just leaving them on the table you know that that's a little and I and I know what he was trying to say I know what he was trying to say but it the phraseology just sounds a little suspicious to me mm-hmm. I don't know um but as, as he said, it's, you know, he started out on the more conservative side and probably followed the same line of thought that I did. And that is, well, betting itself is not a horrible thing. Yeah. 
those who become addicted to it, that becomes another very serious issue. And, you know, when he uses, when the phrase is used, uh, we're just enabling people to link to companies that do that. Are you, does that make you guilty by association? I don't know. I'll leave that up to each of you as listeners. Yeah. But I think the reason I wanted to include it is that that's exactly it. It, it kind of, again, harkens back to this theme we've been tracking for a while about how uh, the line, you know, between like the moral actions and perceptions or whatever the company, like it used to be completely divorced and now it's getting closer to, I mean, I, I was, uh, one might have been surprised that a time interview asked about this. I guess that's my point, right? Is the whole, that like this whole um, where you stand and what you're doing and, and how your reflections as a company are perceived is becoming uh, more important and being able to walk that because I was a little surprised, honestly, that like a, a time piece would, would, I mean, this is more, I would expect that question from like the financial times or like, you know, the, uh, the Harvard business journal or, you know, something that's a little bit more like for business people, this is kind of like the general public wants to know if you think allowing sports betting is moral. And I'm like, what? <laughs> that, that is not something that we used to have to think about when it came to that, that thing, you know, but yeah, just so interesting. They're asking about these two things, the Florida thing and this, and I was like, well, that's, well, and we've talked about, I mean, we've talked about in great length, um, the fact that more and more people are as concerned about the moral stance of yep. a company yep. as they are uh, about the actual attraction itself. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there are companies, even, even, as a, even as an old guy, there are companies that I don't give my money to because I don't agree with their moral standings. Um, their product may be great, but if I don't agree with their, the, their stance, I'm not going to support them with my money. Yep. And I think that is, again, true it's here. It's a growing trend. Um, yeah. yeah. And I do, I do just want to go back because we just, you know, I know we've talked about it a lot. But since I come back to Florida in about six weeks, um, I, I, I want to I just talk just briefly about uh, the, the, the Florida thing with Disney and the governor and all that. Um, so I think it's interesting that, you know, you say he, he softened his stance a little bit. Um, and I think it's because he, it, it's a different audience. Yeah. You know, with, with stockholders, you have to be the, the strong leader. You have to be the, but from what I've seen, and again, you've delved into this deeper from what I've seen, he didn't change the message. No. He just changed the packaging. Yeah. Yeah. He basically reinforcing the message that we are for Florida. Like we are here for Florida to help Florida. We have we have been instrumental in building Florida. We were we plan to remember to remain here. We plan to invest more and we plan to support the people and the businesses and the economy. And and that that was the message. And he kind of was like, I'm open to having conversations with any legislators because I believe, you know, that legislators have a role in the same thing and we both want the same thing, which is excessive Florida, blah, blah. So it, but it really was keeping on the message of like, we're here for Florida. Like we're not like, um, you know, so he, he just and, didn't say and, that, that DeSantis was anti-Florida, which is what he had said in the stockholder meeting. So. Correct. Well, and there are, without getting political, there are people who feel that he is, that DeSantis is anti-Florida and there are people who feel that he is not. Um, that is not for this show, yeah. but the, the, uh, the thing is, the majority of people in the industry, obviously, are looking at this very, very carefully to see how much power 
um, you know, we were just we were earlier, we were just talking about um, governmental, I won't say interference, but uh, governmental regulation in the in the theme park industry. And this to me is taking it to an un, unbelievably strong or unbelievably over the top uh, level yeah. that I don't think anybody experienced. And we'll see how Disney deals with it. It sounds like they're they're Disney's a storyteller. Yes. Disney like, as a company, yes. they are a storyteller. And they are telling a very powerful yep. story. Now, let's hope, yep. let's hope that DeSantis follows the story. I just think, oh God. I just think it was, <laughs> I just can't, that plug that was in there. Oh, great. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, I just think though it's so powerful because they can back it up. That's, I think to me, that's like the big difference is like, this is, it's right. like, here's what we've done. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we continue to do. Well, and what I think is really interesting is it's it's past the point of defending why Reedy Creek existed. Yep. It's not looking backwards. Yep. It's looking forward. Yep. We are here for Florida. We help build Florida. Yep. We will continue to reinvest in Florida. It's a master you know, stroke. Um, it's, it's a, it, their framing of this narrative is very good, and it's hard to argue with it. I mean, it really is. I, I feel like it doesn't matter where you fall on the spectrum. I'm not sure you can really, like, you know, I think everybody in that area at least agrees. And then that's, I think that's the, so. And, and it's interesting, you know, you've, for those of you who have listened to the show for a long period of time or watched the show for a long period of time, you know that Philip and I are not always um, on Disney's side. Yeah. But in this particular case, we have to give credit where credit is due because they are really, in my opinion, based on what I'm seeing, they are handling this incredibly well. And I hope they continue to move forward in this direction because as a Floridian, if they go away, um, it's going to change my quality of life. Yeah. And I do not yeah. want that to happen. I'm, I'm, I, I say that very selfishly and I just want to be transparent about yeah. how, how selfish that is. There, is. there is something I want to mention right at the end of the show here, just while we're on this topic that's gotten brought up. Um, <laughs> so we, we did have a, a few listeners that commented um, about the last episode about it. And they basically mentioned that the thing that we left out about it was the argument that companies have First Amendment rights, basically. And telling a company what they can and can't do is kind of like a, in that way is a violation of First Amendment rights, which companies have. Mm -hmm. And we didn't really bring that up, but that argument has been brought up by other people. The reason we didn't bring it up was just because Disney didn't argue that yet. Right. They might. I mean, right. it might come out in the future with Supreme Courts or appeals or whatever. But we kind of were focused on what was Disney saying like, what are the facts and what, what did Disney say and what did DeSantis say in public comment? We weren't talking about other... We, so I just want to acknowledge that, that like that is a theory that's rolling out there and whatnot. And I don't, I'm not a legal expert, so we don't want to talk, but I just want to acknowledge that. But uh, I also wanted to give two reminders. Right, right out of time. I give two reminders. Um, we have switched over to a separate YouTube channel. So uh, if you were subscribed to it from, please move over to this new channel. And we are also again, changing the feeds around. We're changing the feeds around. So we'll continue to keep Green Tag as a, as a dedicated feed. If you happen to be listening on the network feed, move over and subscribe to Green Tag. And if you were looking at our videos on the network, you can go to the Green Tagged YouTube channel in any places or could just go to greentagshow.com actually has everything for you. So the easiest thing to do is just go to Green Tag Show and you can find the YouTube, the videos and the links to subscribe to the audio, whatever you prefer. 
yeah, so please, please, please follow us because with, you know, without you, it's just the two of us talking on on camera. So, so, uh, and and again, thank you so much for for those of you who did mention the things that we left out. Please continue to do that. Um, we love it when we get feedback, both positive and constructive. Mm -hmm. I won't say negative, mm -hmm. both positive and constructive uh, from our listeners because it really, really helps us. And the only way we can get that feedback is if you continue to listen. But not now because the show's over. So we will see you next week here on Green Tag Theme Park in Thirty. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Philip Hernandez, with post-production by David Swope. Support for this episode comes from Gantam Lighting and Controls. See what you're missing with a free demo. Sign up at gantam.com demo. We release a free weekly industry newsletter. Sign up on our website or at the link in our show notes. The Haunted Attraction Network team includes Daryl Plunkey, Emily Louise Rua, Megan Spells, Gavin Burns, and Maximus Bryant. Our partner stations include A Scott in the Dark, Scare Track, The Scare Factor, and Haunt Topic Radio. Finally, please, please, please rate and subscribe to our show wherever you're listening. And until next time, Haunters, stay scary. This is a Haunted Attraction Network production.